Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. Elvis and the Beatles were indisputably game changers and set pop in motion for the development of punk music, acid house and many more genres. Right up to the current day, pop music still brings new ideas and attitudes to the fore and occasionally goes some way to changing the world. But if we look way back, the original rule breakers came in the form of 1920s jazz musicians. It was to do with social politics as much as anything else and gender politics. There weren't many places where you could meet your partner, get close to somebody of the opposite sex or even the same sex in some locations. And I think that dancing provided a space for young people to explore relationships and to develop intimacy with people in a world where it was quite difficult after the First World War. That's George Burroughs, Professor of Music and Theatre at the University of Portsmouth. His studies led him to a relatively forgotten jazz band of the 1920s and 30s, with a leader whose approach placed him well ahead of his time, from race to gender and even technology. It's International Jazz Day this Sunday, so what better way to celebrate but to explore how Andy Kirk and his Clouds of Joy helped place popular music at the centre of cultural change and how echoes of early 20th century jazz continues to influence 21st century music. Picture yourself as a young person in post-World War I Britain. Things are looking up, the country is loosening up, and attitudes are changing. You're going to want to go out and celebrate your newfound freedom, right? People were dancing, and they wanted music to dance to that had a beat, that was appealing, sounded contemporary. If you think about swing dancing, it's the jitterbug, you know, that you get a little bit later. It's a really fluid, energetic, there's a breaking free involved in it. If you've ever done any of that kind of dance, there are moments where you break out of the rigid rules of where to put your feet and you can do something kind of freestyle. And of course that happens in jazz as well. So the music was perfectly matched to that sense of freedom that that dancing offered. Enter Andy Kirk and his clouds of joy. With blues music fading at the time, swing was fast becoming the pop music of the 1920s. Although during this jazz revolution, Andy was moving to his own rhythm. People think of jazz and they think of Louis Armstrong. They think of perhaps Glenn Miller getting to the middle of the century. And then they might think of people like Thelonious Monk or somebody like that. But I think it's important to realise that those people all came from established centres like Chicago and New York. And Andy Kirk didn't. He came from Kansas City. And I think that's important because he did things a little bit differently. And I think that's one of the reasons he's an innovator and why I'm interested in him. His career started quite a bit before he made his first record in 1929. He was playing in other bands and he was really playing for white society. He was playing for dancing. And then he made this recording and he got a bit lucky. Record companies were looking for black music to record. And the success that that engendered really was followed by a hit record in 1936. And after that, he carried on recording right up until the 1970s. Kirk made a name for himself entertaining wealthy, white and middle to upper class crowds at dances and get-togethers. This was a place to be. After all, that's where good money could be made. They could afford to pay a band of, say, 12, 13, 15, 20 musicians. And Andy Kirk really exploited that. So I think the whole business of dancing and its relationship to music needs more careful consideration. 
I think there's an interesting feedback mechanism between the beat of the band and the beat of the feet. And Andy Kirk talks about this because he played in lots of big dance halls because they built these purpose-built dance halls. And in fact, we have some of them in Portsmouth. Some of the places you can go to a club in Portsmouth were dance halls in the 1930s. And they had big floors that were polished and wooden surfaces. And you could literally hear the feet dancing on the floor. So you had to follow the beat of the dancers as much as the dancers had to follow the beat of the band. Part of what I'm interested in is how the feel of dancing relates to the feel of the music and how they influence one another. Because I'm interested in how people use and connect with music. In the 1920s and 30s, there were unspoken rules about what made white or black music, with two very distinct styles. And whilst attention was playing out in America, the roots of the way that jazz was categorised came from European influences. You had what was known as sweet music, which was fairly easily consumed, quite melodic, usually with a good beat though, and perhaps the icon of sweet music would be somebody like Paul Weitzman, who had a string of hits in the late 20s, early 30s. And then on the other side of it, you would have what was known as hot jazz. And I suppose that would relate to sort of really stereotyped ideas of R&B these days. You know, it was black American music predominantly, led by figures like Louis Armstrong originally, but increasingly moving into a more broader context where both white and black bands could be considered hot. But if you were a black band recording, the expectation was that you would record hot music. And not only that, they had a line of record labels, most of the record companies, that was explicitly for hot music. And they would often use terms like race music for that. So it was a racist marketplace. Andy Kirk was able to do what people expected of a black band on records and at the same time confound their expectations And very often people would mistake them for a white band. But to begin with, he had to convince the record producers that he fitted into the race category of music. And that negotiation is so interesting because it opens up the racism that's actually going on. The fact that people expect music to sound a certain way and then it suddenly doesn't. And he realised he could exploit that. He's very subtly twisting what people expect and doing things that are quite exciting. And he didn't do this on his own, I should say. He had help from his band. And Mary Lou Williams, their pianist, was also the composer of many of their pieces. And she was very clever in trying to write music that sounded both hot and black and at the same time popular. And that was quite a challenge. And I think she succeeded in that. Mary Lou Williams is another key part of the Clouds of Joy story. Alongside the band's clever navigation of the race issues of the time, Mary was challenging expectations of the roles of women. Because whilst hot jazz might have been thought of as a so-called black music, it was also considered a masculine genre. And George thinks this was embedded in the history of the music. In early jazz improvisation, you would have what were called cutting contests, where male musicians would sort of be like gladiators and try and outdo each other with more notes and all that sort of thing. You can imagine in a context like that that's full of masculinity, it would be very difficult for women to have an impact. And that's why it's difficult without really getting into a bit of a study to think about women that feature in jazz that aren't vocalists, who are there at the front of the band, sometimes as eye candy, sometimes because the voice is a more accepted place for women to operate. But the interesting thing about Andy Kirk was that he had this pianist and she was not going to be kept at the back of the band on the piano. She wanted to write the music for the band. 
And Andy Kirk gave her opportunity. He wrote music himself and he helped her and showed her how to do this. But quite quickly, he recognised that she was a great artistic talent. And she put together a couple of hit recordings that they had. And they were interesting because they met what record producers wanted in the sound of a black band. But they had this kind of popular element that went through it and they gave opportunity for the musicians to do their solo work but at the same time it was framed in a good dancing beat and the band had this famous beat he called it a little bounce beat you could feel it now it's easy to forget these trailblazers from the early 20th century and just see jazz music as something smooth that you hear in a cocktail bar i think that it's too easily reduced to something like we do with lots of things these days. And I think it's important to realise that once you start exploring any musical genre, you can find all sorts of iterations that break the rules and do things in different ways. And jazz is no exception. I think it's important to remember it comes from black American experience, but it passes through popular music in the 20s and the 30s. And then it becomes part of black activism and it becomes much more something people listen to. But then you find a movement happening in the 50s and 60s where people are connecting with it as a sort of folk music and traditional jazz, as it was called, starts to emerge. And as the modern era of jazz developed in the second half of the 20th century, having grasped some of the challenges that race and gender politics presented, Andy Kirk continued to use technology to his advantage too. I think the first jazz record was made about 100 years ago. So since then, we've seen the whole of recording technology develop. And that requires different things, different sounds. So Andy Kirk was influential in that because he was living through the era that went through the 78 mono record into stereo and the LP. And you see it happening today. You know, there are groups that I know that are using technology and they're bringing in sampling. I'm not even sure you would identify them as jazz if you think in the traditional way about it. I think you would find that it was much more eclectic, drawing on lots of world music traditions perhaps not even using the instrumentation that we used to, the sax and the drums and the trumpet. And I suppose it's about being open-minded. George has an interesting question to consider, especially when it comes to the world of jazz. What is music for? What happens when we look at these really interesting people and these really interesting moments, challenging our expectations and stereotypes of what music is? I kind of think, what's music for? Of course, it's something to entertain us and to distract us, but it's also doing work. It's something that, like anything else that we are consuming in society, it's actually having an impact on us. Sometimes we don't stop to reflect on that. It's important to try and understand how people consumed it at the time. Because my interest is in how do they get a sense of identity? We know it's really important to people. You take their music away from somebody and you're doing something inhuman to some people and that there's the criticism that people face on some of these television talent compositions. You can see how personally people take it. People's music is very, very important to them. All I'm trying to do is show that. And I think looking at the technology of the time is really important to understand that when you're so removed from it. So, for example, Andy Kirk's records were all recorded in the 1930s when people were using gramophones and they were moving into electrical equipment. But the average record had just three minutes on a side. And it had two sides. People very often talk about the hit song, but they think about the other side of the record. And yet people were obviously consuming that just as much because it was on the other side of the record. So things like that become important because they say something about the material and people's relationship to the material and why it's meaningful to them in their lives. 
So it's sort of a conceptual thing, but it's also a material thing. There's a very real thing about getting up and turning over a record. These days, we have a lot of music in the background all the time, but you can't do that when you've only got three minutes because you actually have to pay attention. You actually have to get up and do something with it, and that affects your relationship with the music itself. I don't know if it makes it more important. I think it makes it differently important, and it's important to respect that mode of consumption. It's a really interesting thought. The way that music technology informed the development of Andy Kirk's sound as much as the other cultural elements of the time. That's something that's continued for the wider music industry since, and perhaps as a reason that some people are going back to older forms of listening. The interesting thing about the 78 RPM era of records is that an album was a real album. You had like lots of records in this thing. But the idea of the concept album comes a lot later and really was made available by the LP. Andy Kirk did that to some extent because later in his life, he revisited and did a kind of greatest hits album, but he used a different band to perform the hits he'd had before. And that's kind of interesting for loads of reasons because it appeared at a moment when they were trying to exploit the sonic possibilities of a small electric record player and a new type of recording that allowed for more volume. So whereas in the 30s, he'd recorded with a band of about 12, by the time you get to that point, he's recording with 19, 20 musicians just to get a fuller and to really exploit the fuller sound and really exploit the sonic potential of your equipment. I think that is another thing that maybe we take for granted today that we're listening to everything in a certain medium and it's compressed in certain ways. And sometimes going back to the old equipment can be quite revelatory because you can then hear in ways that we haven't for a while. So, for example, I've got a lot of wind-up gramophones that I've invested in for this project. And the minute I put a record on it, it jumped to life in a way that I couldn't believe and was quite different from listening through headphones. And you can also feel a kind of impact from the way the air is moving through, the column of air moves through the horn and is amplified. My kids love it, and we dance around the living room listening to this sort of thing from time to time. Because it's not just nostalgia, it's kind of a, a different sort of consumption. The seeds that the likes of Andy Kirk sowed nearly 100 years ago continue to flower in the 21st century. Take musicals, for example. I think Hamilton was really challenging people to think in pretty much similar ways to my study of Andy Kirk's records. There's a race angle to that. They were very careful to cast these figures, these founding fathers of America with a black cast, and to use a style of music that reflected that, I suppose, activism, racial activism, harnessing forms of hip-hop. But if you listen carefully... It's still a traditional musical. There are still wonderful songs in it. There are still really tuneful moments in a form that is rare in hip-hop, I suppose, in quite that way. Real sort of melodic-driven moments. And I think it revolutionised the way that a lot of people thought about musical theatre. And I think it's great that that work has been given that sort of attention. And we just have to hope that more things come along like that because the trouble with musical theatre is it's very commercial. So there is a sense that, like with a lot of pop music you're on repeat there's a sort of formula you're trying to create the next hits and you would of course draw on the experience of people that have had hits in the past a particular sound a particular vocal quality so it's quite refreshing when people do something a bit differently and whilst we had george in the studio we thought we'd ask him for his current day jazz recommendations it turns out there's some exciting music to explore there's an interesting band called the bad plus 
And I like them because there's a sort of indie thing going on that crosses over with jazz. They're a trio, but they have a real drive. And the way they structure their music is interesting and more akin to the way that certain rock forms would structure things than traditional jazz. But more recently, I've done a big research project about connections between musical theatre and jazz, because a lot of early jazz standards come from musicals. And I've been working with a guy called James Mannering, who's up in Leeds, and he's part of a group called the Roller Trio. And their music is really interesting because it breaks all sorts of conventions, uses technology quite a lot, and often uses forms of jazz that are sometimes considered a bit challenging because they involve forms of improvisation that are essentially free of traditional structures. So they can be a little bit challenging to listen to, but I think they're really interesting in what they can show of the potential of jazz to be a artistic medium but at the same time harnessing the kinds of technological things you would expect in hip-hop or some other contemporary form of music it's still alive and kicking jazz it's not something that died you know and I don't like to think that I'm working in a museum even though my work is quite historic the book I've written is really about music from the 1930s 40s 50s and a little bit of the 60s and 70s but mostly it's about a living culture it's about how do we use music in our lives why is it so meaningful what is it about music that makes it so meaningful? And why is that important? Not to you and me, but to society at large, because we must have this for a reason. Otherwise, nobody would care about it, would they? You can find links to some of that music in the show notes. Happy listening. As we've heard in this episode, Andy Kirk and his contemporaries were creating melodies by bringing different genres together. And as a result, they brought society closer together through their music. Combining commercial appeal, artistic endeavor, the racial politics of early 20th century America, the role of women in music, and a changing technological landscape, the negotiations that Kirk made then formed the influences that we can hear in popular music today. And as George says, even the name of the band, The Clouds of Joy, gave a nod to those negotiations. Clouds and joy are kind of contradictions in terms. And I think in some ways that's what you can see in his music and what makes him such an interesting innovator. And to some extent, what makes all jazz interesting. Because on the one hand, it has to conform to certain expectations. But on the other hand, it has to break free from them. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website. You can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just hit subscribe at port.ac.uk forward slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday and we'll be heading to Siberia to explore ice ivory, the mammoth crime that everyone should know about. When you're talking about the difference between a piece of the elephant ivory and a piece of grade A mammoth ivory, it's really difficult. We'd like to see mammoth added to the ivory act along with the other species of living animals that also have tasks. Thanks for listening. See you next time.